Amen and amen. All right, tonight, you guys ready? Everybody ready for this? All right, you want to turn to the second chapter. The second chapter, we finally made it to chapter two, amen? If you're planning on going quickly, you're in the wrong church. (laughs) Revelation chapter 2, and tonight really is our introduction. Uh, We're going to cover the first seven verses just briefly, but really going to look at them in the context in which we will look at all seven churches. These churches that were alive, well, thriving during that day and time, these churches that were Uh, a picture of all churches that would come, and a very specific prophetic window uh, that would one day be the church age. And so tonight, uh, we'll pick up in verse 1. Let's look at these first seven verses, and we'll ask the Lord to speak to us uh, this time as we study His Word. And it says there in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 2 to the angel, remember, the angels are... Those churches' pastors, they're the mouthpiece. They are those who would speak forth this truth. And so each of these letters will be spoken forth to a specific church, to the pastor of that church, for that church to pass along that truth. And that is all any pastor is ever supposed to do, is to pass along the truth of what God's Word actually says. We don't make it up. We don't get our own truth. We repeat what he's already said. As Nehemiah declared during chapter 8, the job of expository teaching is to read the Word of God distinctively, give it sense and meaning. That's it. And so tonight, our introduction to the angel, to the church at Ephesus, and this is indicative of all of them and specific to the first one, These things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the pastors of those churches, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, those are the seven churches. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear with those who are evil, that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not. You see, false doctrine has been around a long time. Those who would preach something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he in fact is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, those people have existed a very, very, very long time. You found them liars. And you have persevered and have had patience, have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. All churches that have existed throughout all of time have had the burden of carrying forth the truth of God, bearing forth that word that goes forth into our world that accomplishes today what he goes to to will to do with it. And nevertheless, notice what it says, and you'll find this is a model for all but one of the churches. Some good things. And then something that's not so good. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. How many churches are about everything but Jesus? How many churches are preaching a social gospel? How many churches have some other 
gospel entirely. But they've left their first love, the love of God. That love of God leads men to repentance, by the way. That love of God changes lives. The love of God binds the wounds that the world inflicts upon us. Left the first love. And remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Where you came from. Just what we saw this last Sunday. The way we were, amen? Not the way we are. That's coming this next Sunday. The way we were. What we used to be. So important for all churches to remember from whence they have come. For but by God's grace go we again, amen? Were it not for the saving grace and the keeping grace and the empowering grace of God, how would any of us stand? And yet there are churches that forget from where they've come. And there's nothing worse than a church that thinks that the holiness of God comes from them. The holiness of God belongs to God alone. And he imparts it to us by the finished work of the cross through Jesus Christ's blood. And he says, unless you repent. Church doesn't like to use that word anymore. I have people very frequently tell me, hey, hey, you know, I'm okay with the love thing, but don't tell me about this repentance deal. Can I speak a truth into your life? Without repentance, there is no love. He didn't save us to leave us as we were. He saved us to transform our minds and to renew them. He saved us that we might be changed into the image of God. Not that we become God, but we are the likeness that he wishes uh, to show the world. We're supposed to look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, act like Jesus, be like Jesus in this world. And you can't be like that if you're covered in filth. Nobody's going to see Jesus when, you, when you're dipped in the sewage of this world. And so he says, repent. Don't keep doing what you were doing. Turn around, do a 180, go the other way. Some people think that repentance is just simply being sorry. Being sorry accomplishes zilch. Very biblical word. It means not much. You have to come to the conclusion you're wrong. That should bring you to godly sorrow, but godly sorrow should lead you to repentance. Every church and in every way, we should be turning from our sin. And this church, indicative of many churches today, all churches throughout time, and very specifically, prophetically, about that church in Ephesus. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so he names a specific doctrinal error, which we'll cover when we get to this church next week. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And notice it's plural. It's a correct translation of the original language. It's not to the church alone. It's to all churches in all times, every day and in every way. To him who overcomes, 
I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen and amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glorious work that you're going to do in us tonight as we study. Lord, as we dedicate this single hour, Lord, to just sitting at your feet, Jesus, and learning of you. We pray that you would bring truth into our lives, that that truth would be assimilated into our character. That character would be the mark of us in this world. Lord, change us and transform us. Use this time for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. You see, this message that's going to come out in all of these churches was both very timely and at the same time, timeless. In other words, it was spoken to a specific church. These are seven churches located in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, all surrounding the general vicinity of Jerusalem, modern-day Israel. But as these letters are written, remember Paul is imprisoned on a little Greek island off the coast, just slightly west Uh, of Ephesus. He's there writing in this cave and these things are being revealed to him. He's seeing them and these letters are going to go to actual churches. And so these actual churches are going to receive these things as though they're specific to them that day and time. It'd be the same thing as if I wrote to you a letter and I said, well, here, Kevin, these are the things, you know, I have this that's going on. Worship was awesome last night. But when you backed over the lady in the parking lot, that was bad. You see, that would be specific for right now. Worship is always awesome, though, isn't it? It's a good thing to do. Backing over people, really bad. You can see how it would have applied at that point in time, instantaneously, right then, right there. It would have also been great counsel. And then going forward, what if you had a church of backer-overs of peoplers? People that constantly just wanted to, you know, just like every person that went in the parking lot, somebody run them over. You see, there's a very specific reason that these seven churches were picked, and yet there's a very prophetic reason that these seven churches were picked, and there was a very perennial reason these churches were picked. So we have three things that will come in view to us tonight, and that is the practical, that is the perennial, And that is the prophetic. Because they are going to apply to a church at that time. They will apply to a very broad sense of the church throughout time. And they will also portray the prophetic work that would happen in a specific period of time during the church's history. And so as we look at these things, we need to keep in mind that as we look at these periods of time, we need to not isolate them. A lot of people isolate the seven letters. They say, well, that was just simply from AD 30 to AD 100, which is the church of Ephesus. But I think every church struggles with first things first, don't they? Keeping love where it belongs. And so as we look at these churches, you're going to find out if you were to read a whole bunch of commentaries on the book of Revelation. You're going to find all kinds of things written about these dates, but I have a few lists up here. One of them, uh, Tim LaHaye. Another one, Hal Lindsey. You can see up there, J. Vernon McGee. If you're looking at the PowerPoint notes, if you can write all this down in the next couple of minutes, more power to you. (laughs) But it gives you a sense of when these church periods of history really were. And so they really span from the day of Pentecost, A.D. 30, 
uh, to a period of time that is yet to come to us. Rapture of the church, followed by the tribulation, followed by the second coming of the Lord, the battle of Armageddon, followed by the millennial reign of Christ, followed by a new heaven and a new earth. This, this period of the church's history, as we know it, is ongoing. And it is still that we have not gotten to that place where we hear that trumpet sound. But that day is near. And so as we look at these churches throughout the next several weeks, we have three views uh, that will be in view for us. And it's wonderful that we can take this time tonight to kind of lay out what we need to look at at each church. And so as we look at them practically, conditions that existed literally during that day, that time, seven literal churches in Asia Minor. Perennially, those things that would happen throughout church history as, as a whole. Conditions, issues, things that would be addressed. Uh, they still are a problem today. They continue to exist in many ways in churches right now, this very moment. Maybe not here in Calvary Chapel of South Bay, but they undoubtedly exist in the church in the world. And then the third way, prophetically, these conditions that would mark periods of time. And so as you look at this first church, Ephesus pictures a very specific type of church. And it's very important that as we begin to look at these things, Ephesus happened to be an extremely formal church. It had its doctrine, remember what we just saw, and we're going to cover this church in detail next week. But as you see that church, it had doctrine right, but it wasn't loving. You can have your doctrine correct. You can be that legalistic, dry, dead-to-the-bone church, and you can drive people away from the gospel because you don't have love. And so that church practically existed then. Smyrna was the fearful church. And, and as you look at, at the church in the world today, that church was under tremendous persecution because of the very specific place that it held in the world. It was at the crossroads, a Roman crossroads specifically, and in trade route. And so everything revolved around, what does Rome think? Are there not churches today that follow that same exact plan? But that church in that day and time was fearful. Pergamos was a very faulty church. It had all kinds of problems. Thyatira was just flat out a false church. And you see, as the Holy Spirit authored these words, and as John wrote them down, as, as the Lord Jesus speaks in these things, he's saying, look, you, this, this church is just whack. It's out there. It's just completely wrong. Sardis was a completely fruitless church. What did Jesus say? We're actually going to look at it this coming Sunday night. He desires for us to be grafted into the vine, that we start with some fruit, as, you, as a believer, you're supposed to bear fruit, amen? And if you bear some fruit, you're supposed to bear more fruit, and ultimately you're supposed to bear much fruit, amen? So that church was a fruitless church. That's kind of useless, isn't it? Because fruit generally, generally comes as we win people to Christ. As the Spirit works in their life and we share the gospel. Philadelphia was a feeble church at that time. It was almost ready to fall apart. And so, practically speaking, 
Laodicea was the fashionable church. It was the PC, politically correct church of the day. It was the materialistic church as well. And so as we look at these three views, and as you begin to look at them uh, in some depth, you're going to see that these churches had problems that were very specific to their, their day and time. Turning to the perennial side, or those things which exist in all the churches, Ephesus was very, very fundamental. So throughout time, there has been a fundamental church, amen? That church which you would go there, and you're always going to hear relatively sound doctrine. Fundamentally strong, but legalistic to the core. Bound up in all kinds of do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Stand up, sit down, fight, 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 amen? It's like you don't know whether to put your hands up for a field goal or praise the Lord. There's, there's always been those churches. Smyrna was a church that was ritualistic. We still have the ritualistic church in the world today. And as I say these things, please don't think I'm picking on any denomination or any group of people. We're probably all guilty of some of these things uh, from time to time. But there is a ritualistic church. They're more concerned with, do they do communion on the third Sunday of each month or not? Jesus said, be very, very careful of the vain traditions of man. Because they don't necessarily accomplish the righteousness of God. And so throughout time, ritualistic church. Pergamos was a clerical church. And as you look at those churches that exist today, sometimes you have churches that, man, if you walk in, it looks really, really, really holy. But you can't find the presence of God anywhere. It's just rituals. You can't even understand what's being said. It's just simply ritual. And again, please take no offense. I'm not trying to pick on a church. The Lord wrote those words, not me. He said, be careful. Be careful that you don't fall into relying on the clergy too much. Pastors can fail you, in case you didn't know that. Just saying. Happens. We need to keep our hope and trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen? Thyatira had a real problem. They were a pagan church. They'd allow paganism to, to creep in. And again, we have churches like that today. I'm shocked sometimes at the language that I hear coming out of pastors. When a pastor finds it necessary to be so culturally relevant that he uses profanity from the pulpit, I can pretty much tell you that's not from God. You see, there, there are churches that have adopted pagan things. There are very liberal churches. And we're being swept over in this country by the liberal church right now. Are we not? You have so many major denominations, once God-fearing, Christ-honoring, Bible-reading, Bible-honoring, absolutely believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. You have, you have major mainline denominations that are denying the plain teaching of God's Word. 
so liberal that they have believed the lie. That church has always existed. The church of Philadelphia is that one church that the Lord really had not much to say about them that was wrong. He said they were a revival-driven missionary church. That's a good thing to be, amen? And isn't it crazy how churches who stick to revivalism and missionary works prosper throughout time? They may be three people, but they're doing the work of the Lord. And so that church has existed perennially throughout the church age. And then finally, the materialistic, the Laodicean church. Man, does that not describe the age in which we live? Now, having traveled around quite a bit, having specifically been to an awful lot of places in South America, Brazil, and seeing what people call church, being in Africa, traveling around and seeing what the church actually has in the rest of the world, it is staggering what the church in America actually possesses. And yet we run over by two minutes and people are freaking out. They're calling their doctor because they need anti-anxiety medication. <laughs> my, my assisting pastor in Running Springs was in Africa for about five years. In South Sudan. They were shelled at least once or twice a week. They were shot at almost every day. And church went three or four hours. In 115 degree heat. It gets over 68 in here. Some complain. <laughs> I'm roasting! You sweat because it's your body telling you it's time to cool off, okay? And I'm not picking on anybody. But we have become materialistically driven. So perennially, fundamentalist, ritualistic, clerical, pagan, liberal, revival, missionary, and materialistic churches. Those types of churches throughout the entire church age have always existed. They exist today, every last one of them. And then finally, and you have to look at these things all together. That's the easiest way to do this. You have the prophetic view. These are the conditions that would mark certain periods of time throughout the history of the church that would be unique, generally that would overlap from one period of time to the next period of time. And by the time you get to the fourth period, the period uh, of Pergamos, as you go from there into the, the period of the church at Sardis, you finally start to see these things existing side by side. And I believe that those churches will exist all the way to the end of time, the age of grace. And so Ephesus, the post-apostolic church, A.D. 30 to roughly A.D. 100. You have the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church. And if you know anything about the Roman persecutions, as men like Eusebius or Jerome would write, you know, it got so bad during the Roman persecutions that eventually the lions that were kept in the Colosseum stopped attacking the Christians because they were just bloated on Christian. They couldn't eat anymore. It was so bad that there was just, people were just giving up. They weren't even bothering to, to fight anymore. That period of Roman persecution was horrific. It ended in about 315 as Constantine would come on the scene. Then you had the papal church that would follow from uh, roughly 315 A.D. to 606. 
Then you had the Middle Ages that followed after that. And we're going to see the history of these churches as we take them apart one at a time. And the things that are mentioned, we'll be able to see exactly what happened during those periods of time. Uh, The Church of the Middle Ages was one of the most evil empires that have ever existed on the face of the earth. It was that church that was responsible for the peasant wars in Europe. It was that church that was responsible for the Inquisition. It was that church that was responsible for the Crusades. It was that church that was responsible for forced confession. It was that church that brought forth the the paying of indulgences. It, It was that church that was absolutely, unbelievably evil. By the time you get to the end of that church, you see the Protestant Reformation come on in 517. As Martin Luther grabs his 95 Thesis, he nails it to the church door at Wittenberg. He lists all of these grievances against the Catholic Church, and he says, look, we can't do this anymore. And, and he says, the just shall live by faith. And that period of time is still ongoing. We're still seeing the Protestant movement. We still see... Uh, the papal church existing alongside of the Protestant church. And again, when I say these things, please understand what I mean. There are wonderful, absolutely saved, loving people who love Jesus who happen to be Catholics. And there are Protestants who are the worst of heathens on the face of the earth. So we're not talking about individuals. We're talking about church movements and church history. Very different than individual people. And you must keep that squared away in your head. When I was down in Brazil, I was actually doing a conference down there, and I was teaching uh, on the radio. They had me do a live radio broadcast on the largest Christian radio station in southern Brazil. And as I'm doing it, a Catholic priest walks in the door and found out that he had been listening uh, in our Bible, st- Bible college classes in the facility there in Campo Morau. And he said, it's the first time I'd ever learned anything about expository teaching in his entire time in the priesthood. And so he and I got to become friends. And I can tell you that man knew Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, and he absolutely loved God. But I can also tell you that there's a whole lot of paganism in the Catholic Church as well. And so, please differentiate between individual believers and the official doctrine of many movements. The church at Philadelphia was a practical church. It was a missionary church. It's a a church that just believed, hey, let's read our Bibles and let's go see people one to Christ. Period. And that church would birth uh, incredible movements of God. And then finally, the church at Laodicea, speaking prophetically of the church that would finally become materialistic. That, doesn't, that happened in the last hundred years, really. You go back to the turn of the century here in America, most people still lived in poverty. And that was true for the whole world. It really wasn't until after the end of the Second World War, really after the end of the Korean War, that America began to see the the immense prosperity that we see today. And again, prosperity is a good thing used correctly, amen? I'm thankful for every millionaire, jillionaire, and billionaire that loves Jesus. But there's an awful lot of people who have an awful lot of money who do nothing but please themselves. 
and some of them go to church. The present day materialistic church. And so as we evaluate these interpretations, there's a few things we need to keep straight going forward. You can look back on many of these things, and as we we see throughout Scripture, when you read the book of Isaiah, there was an imminent Assyrian invasion. Uh, You you can read of Sennacherib and his army uh, on Mount Scopus, looking down at Jerusalem just a mile or so away, and, and you can see the battle lines drawn. Very, very clear. But they also were a picture of things to come. And they were a foretaste of what will one day be the Battle of Armageddon. Because in a local sense, it seemed like the world had come to an end. The difference is your Bible says literally the world will one day come to an end. Matter of fact, so great will those battles be that beginning with about a third of the world's population, it will be wiped out. That the Christians will be snatched away by force, taken out of the scene so much so that they no longer are even seen in the history of the book of Revelation from chapter 4 onward. And so as we look at these, we we must keep these little details uh, straight in our mind. You see, the historical part of it is very important. But I think more so, what does it mean to us today? How are we looking at at our Bibles? What are we doing with what we know? What truth have we not just taken uh, into our own lives, but what truth are we willing to share with other people? You see, there's a lot of the church in the world that says, oh, yeah, I love this, man, the book of Revelation. And and then when people start talking about the last days, well, you know, it's kind of, it may be someday. The same Bible that says you're saved by grace and through faith says that Jesus is coming again. Amen? And it also says that when he comes again, he's not coming back as the lamb. He's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so it's important for us to make sure that we don't minimize the message of the seven churches. As we think on these things going forward, we ask ourselves the question, why these seven churches? And I love Joseph Seiss in his three-volume set of commentaries called The Apocalypse and his lectures on the book of Revelation. It was actually written in 1874, so it's a fairly old book. You're going to have a tough time finding it at Barnes & Noble, uh, but you can go online and read it. And he said, then, in 1874, there are Protestant papists, there are papacitical Protestants, There are sectarian, anti-sectarians. There are partyists who are not schismatics, holy ones in the midst of abounding defection and apostasy, unholy ones in the midst of a most earnest and active fate, light in dark places and darkness in the midst of light. Why these seven churches? You, You see, there was a local message. There was an admonitory message. A message that you can say, look, every church needs to hear this. A homiletic message. I need to hear it. Not just the church. Jeff Gill needs to hear this message. It's for me personally. There was a prophetic message. A particular order that God was speaking these things so that we could look at it and go, man, that looked a whole lot like the Middle Ages. And as we 
begin to see these things. And we can kind of fill in that gap because some people go, well, what happened in Daniel chapter 9? Why is it like that? You know, you have these 62 weeks and these 7 weeks and that's 69 weeks and it leaves another week and we've got a week left to go and what in the world's a week? Well, it's a week of years. Seven of them. And it's coming. And when it happens... It's going to be because the Lord is done with the age of grace and he's finally coming back to judge the earth for what it's done with his land, with the nation Israel. Not going to be a good thing. It's going to be hard. So the good news is he hasn't come back yet. So guess what? We still have grace. We still have grace to share and we have grace to bear. And so these historical churches were a picture for us. Some people have asked, you know, what is prophecy? What does it really mean? There's a biblical definition. If you want to turn there, Isaiah chapter 46, it begins in verse 9. A passage that if you look at it, you can see very clearly exactly what the Lord intends when he writes prophetically. And if you think that it's not important, about 23, 24% of the entire Bible is prophetic in nature. So almost a quarter of it. So I'm pretty sure the Lord intends to us, uh, intends for us to understand his prophetic message. Verse 9, it begins in Isaiah 46. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. That's a pretty plain statement. Remember when? Remember back? Remember, if you will, all the way to the book of Genesis, to chapter 1 in the beginning. Remember. I am God and there's no other. I am God and there's none like me. If you didn't, didn't get it the first time, he repeats it for emphasis. He says, look, I alone am God. It's the reason we've been looking at the I am statements of Christ. Jesus said something so unique that no one else ever in human history has actually said it and meant it to be true. I am who I am. The words that were spoken to Moses, he says, look, when you go to Pharaoh, you tell them that I am who I am sent you. The one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come is with you. And he is speaking these things to you and through you. And then he goes on to define it. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things that are not yet done. Is that simple enough for you? You want to understand why God writes prophetically because he alone is God and he knows exactly what's going to happen throughout all of time. He can be taught nothing. Some people think of God almost in a human sense. And when they think of God, they think that he needs to learn things like we need to learn things. He doesn't need to learn anything. He already knows what's going to happen. And he knows very specifically, and he knows absolutely, completely. The things that are from the end to the beginning, beginning to end, from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. It's emphatic in the original Hebrew language. What it actually means there is, my counsel is standing, always. Won't ever not stand. And I will do all my pleasure, again for emphasis, not part of his pleasure, not some of his pleasure, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we finally get to the end, we're going to see that God was actually in charge the whole time. People sometimes don't believe that. We look at the world, we see what's going on, and say, well, how could God be in charge of that? Because even God, God is even in charge in what he allows. 
He's in charge even though he allowed Job to be tested like no one that we would ever think of would, should be tested. You know, how would it be for God to brag on you? Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the face of the earth. And Satan inquires of him and says, well, let me test him. And he'll curse you to his face. And God says, go ahead. I do not want to be Job like that. Now, you look at Job's life. Mm, Sitting in the city dump, scraping himself with pottery for his boils didn't sound like a recipe for success. Amen? But what happened at the end of his life? Greater was the end than the beginning. Amen? So God knew exactly what he was doing, and he said and spoke the exact truth. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the face of the earth in righteousness. He goes on to speak prophetically, calling a bird of prey from the east. Cyrus the Mede, the Persian, would come. He would destroy the Babylonians. He would sneak into the city of Babylon. He would open up the gates from underneath the river Euphrates, allow the army to come in by night. They wouldn't even see him. A man who executes my counsel. And once these things were written, they were written fully a hundred years before they happened. And Cyrus did come. For indeed I have spoken it, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will also do it. In other words, God is saying, if you want to know what prophecy is, you want to know what God can do, he speaks forth history in advance. He knows what's going to happen, and he lets us in on it. There are people that don't like it, don't believe it. Peter repeats those things. You see, man believes in, in vain philosophical conjurings. We put together very weird and extremely strange things. So much so that as we invent religious movements like Christian science, like Jehovah's Witnesses, like the Seventh-day Adventists, all of a sudden you have people denying medical care because they believe that they have enough faith to heal themselves and then they die because their teeth are rotting out. Pretty tough to explain to your congregation. Well, I lead this movement, but I didn't have enough faith to save myself. Because it's not true. It's not the type of faith that God's asking of us. Jesus, matter of fact, countered that, and he said, in this world, you'll have tribulation. He said, the poor you will have with you always. So when some health, wealth, prosperity, doctrine, preaching teacher stands up on television and tells you he needs money for his $65 million Gulfstream jet, I can tell you he's not speaking for God. God did not tell him to send that message forth because those are widow's mites that are purchasing that jet and he can fly just like the rest of us in coach. In case you didn't know, the front end of the plane gets to the same place as the back end of the plane. <laughs> Cunningly devised fables, Peter would call them in Second Peter chapter 1. You see, we need to remember that God has spoken these things to us and believe what he said. You see, it, it begins with us because when our hearts are right, when we look at these 
church movements throughout time and we realize what God is speaking to us, uh, we can see that practically there, there was a formal church then. You see these views become a cohesive grouping uh, of things that we can understand. We understand that there's always been a fearful church. That church in Smyrna, a uh, matter of fact, the coins... Uh, it was considered to be the birthplace of Homer, by the way. If you've ever read the Iliad or seen Old Brother, Where Art Thou?, which is Iliad put in a context of the 1920s. Uh, but if you, if you were to go to that church, you would have found a church that was, that was afraid of the culture it lived in. It was afraid of Rome. If you were to travel to Pergamos because of the royal residence there in Pergamos, it was the center of medicine at the time. Ascalepus was the god. If, you, if you're a doctor in here, forgive me. Uh, you, you have on your medical symbol, you have a rod with a serpent twisted around it. That, that's Ascalepus. It actually comes from Greek mythology. It's a Greek god of medicine. And they were absolutely looking at that more than they were looking at the Lord. And, and so they began to trust a wonderful gift that medical doctors have. I have friends that are doctors. But they're no substitute for God. Matter of fact, they can do no more than God allows. You had Thyatira, who was just flatly a false church. They had bought into Roman thinking, and basically whatever Rome said, that's what they did. The fruitless church, Lydia, the capital of uh, the area of Sardis, fabulously wealthy. They, they believed all kinds of crazy things. You see, these churches have existed always, but they were very specific in that day and time. The second possibility, viewing these churches perennially. Man, I, I, because I grew up in a fundamental Baptist church, and again, I have all kinds of brothers and sisters who are still in the Baptist church. I have some very dear pastor friends who are pastor Baptist churches, so this is not anti-Baptist at all. Some of the most powerful churches in America right now are some Baptist churches. But there are some fundamental churches you almost can't find Jesus in them. And you can find all kinds of doctrinal correctness. They can explain to you the doctrine of sanctification and maturation. You'll come out knowing what propitiation is. You'll know all the Asians. But you can't find the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords because it's all up here. Never reaches out past that. You see, perennially, there's always been those fundamental churches that look right on the outside, but they weren't horribly loving. You've always had those ritualistic churches. Churches that tried to blend everything in the world together into church. You know, sometimes now they, they come across as those churches that are culturally relevant, don't they? And yet the gospel's lost. Oh, they're really relevant. So much so that you can pretty much live in any kind of sin you want. Nobody's ever going to talk to you about it. You're not going to have a pastor dial you up and say, you know, bro, you really need to shut down your, your cocaine business. <laughs> well, just tithe part of it, brother. 
I'm pretty sure that's not of the Lord. <laughs> Clerical movement. Yeah, it looks good. Sounds nice. I lived in Europe for almost a year. I lived in Austria. I remember the first time I went into the Salzburg Cathedral. I mean, you instantaneously walked in and you almost felt like, wow, you know, God might actually live here. And it was so dead that when they had service, it held 5,000 people. When they held service, there was less than 100 people that actually went to church in that building. It was dead. It was dead. You could hear your voice. The church is over 400 feet deep. So four times the depth of this one. In the shape of a cross, as most European cathedrals are. And you could stand at one end with a speaking voice be heard at the other end of the building. But nobody was getting saved. No gospel was being preached. But if you went to the wrong place at the wrong time, the guards would come get you. You see, we need to be careful that we don't make church a mortuary. Thyatira had a real problem. It, it kind of blended together what we call uh, sacerdotalism, and that's the, the belief that the priesthood has power over the people. Can I tell you something? I don't have a special phone on my desk that goes straight to heaven. Sometimes you'll be, well, you know, can you, well, your prayers are just as good as mine. They go through the same guy. And I'm pretty sure he hears yours too. And again, I love praying for you. Don't get me wrong. But you don't need me to go to God the Father for you. You can go yourself. The veil is torn. Amen? Don't forget that. Because there are a lot of churches that almost thrive on the fact, well, you know, you, just, you better come in and see me because I got something special. The only thing special about me is I'm going to get in more trouble at the end, okay? It says, I will suffer a stricter judgment because I've been a teacher of the word. And it scares me to death. But it doesn't make me special. And you had the liberal church. Live, dynamic, all kinds of stuff going on. But there was no Jesus. The revival church. I love the revival church. Man, we should be a revival church. Can you imagine if we spun out some new thing that the Lord was doing? I, you know, I was talking actually with a couple of people last week, talking about how Calvary Chapel got its start and all that kind of thing. And at the time, Connie and I were attending a, a Baptist church, a very big Baptist church in El Cajon, California, down in San Diego County. And it was a huge, thriving Baptist church. But I remember we were like, oh, there, there's these crazy long-haired people playing music at this other church. What, what is that? You know, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm going, man, this, this, this could be something, something very, very cool. And so we started sneaking away and going to the Maranatha concerts. And, and I found out, you know, you could actually be saved and have long hair. <laughs> that if you had bare feet, you weren't going directly to hell. That if you were, like, and we have photo evidence, you can ask Connie to see it. Uh, of me in bell bottoms and I actually had not just hair but long hair <laughs> and I remember I had been away from the church for a while and I came back to the church and I came back with, with considerably more hair than I had the last time I was there you know I had the normal 1960's buzz cut lived in a navy town, navy dad 
We had exactly one haircut at that time. It was no hair. <laughs> Period. Men did not have hair. You could have a flat top. And that was considered a long hair. But I remember coming back, and, and one of the deacons met me at the door. And he said, I, I was just getting ready to go in and sit down. And he says, no, you can't go in. You have to, you have to sit in the narthex. And I said, what? Huh? Seriously? You, you see, we need to be really, really careful that we don't go someplace we shouldn't go. There's been liberal churches, there's been fundamental churches throughout time. That was a dynamic church, but it started to lose its first love. And all of a sudden you're telling kids they're not welcome. Because they don't fit the mold. That's how Calvary Chapel got its start, by the way. Church at Philadelphia, that, that revival-driven church. Man, that, I would love to see another one more revival, amen? Wouldn't that be awesome? Starts here with us, and all of a sudden people are getting saved and going crazy. We can't fit anybody in here. We get to Thursday nights and we're meeting out in the parking lot or something. That would be pretty awesome. Because maybe one of those people in that crowd is the last one that's going to give their life to Jesus. We can go home. And we surely don't want to become that materialistic church. And as we finish up tonight, you look at these things prophetically, and that will be the way that we'll tie all these together. There are periods of church history that have primarily had these things going on in them. The church of Ephesus was a fallen church. Oh, how you've fallen. You used to be on fire. You're no longer on fire. Uh, these urgent letters went forth. They, they came from people like Peter and John and Jude. They got, can you imagine being a church that actually got a letter from John? Can you imagine being a church that got a letter from Jude? From Peter? And yet somehow... You couldn't keep first things first? That Christ came that he might save those that are lost? And you start worrying about whether you're fundamentally sound or not? You see, that was a church that faded out of existence. And so it will be with the rest of these persecuted church, the patronized church, the church that was more concerned with which saint was on which wall. Ultimately, the church would fall into the doctrine of Balaam. You would see the church that would fall into the sin, the same sin of Jezebel. Remember, Jezebel married King Ahab and brought total pagan worship into the church. The Jewish people, all of a sudden, before you know it, they're worshiping Baal and they're worshiping the one true God, all in the same church. Man, God help us. There's only one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one Lord that's Lord over all. We'll see that when we get to the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesus. There's only one. When churches start saying they're the only way, Jesus is the only way. It's by Him, it's His name. It's the only name under heaven whereby men may be saved. Amen? Amen. It's, not, it's not some church on a building. 
It's the name that's written on the thigh, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so as we look at these periods of church history, you want a great book. It's huge. It's called Church History. It's by Andrew Miller. It's about 1,200 pages. You can get that if you like those kind of things. It's a good, uh, good place to start. You can go crazy. You're going to be getting a dose of it for the next almost two months as we go through these churches. But they're exciting to look at because we can see them today. We can see them in history. And in some cases, we can see what's coming. Next week, the church at Ephesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your work in the church. And Lord, as we think back on men like John and Charles Wesley and Dwight Moody and Charles Finney and Livingston Taylor, Judson, Lord Knox, Calvin. These men who gave all they had for you, Lord, let us give all we have for you. Lord, let us be the source of a new revival right here in the South Bay. Lord, let it begin in this church and go forth out into our world. Lord, we want to go home, but we know you want to seek and save the lost. And so, Lord, don't let us become a faltering or a feeble church. Don't let us become a fake church. Lord, help us to never find ourselves in that place of a lukewarm church, Lord. Let us never lose our first love. Father God, we love you, and we know that you first loved us. We pray that love would pour out of us to this world. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here tonight that's never heard the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. As we leave tonight, we pray that they would seek out, Lord, that there would be a time of repentance, just calling on the name of the Lord. For all that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's in that name, the only name, the name of Jesus, we pray all these things. And all of God's kids said, Amen. Amen.